right now sitting here talking to you, there is no major breaking story happening. But in 10 minutes time, that might be different. So you have to have some grip on your priorities. I run in a, an athletics club and I, I really prioritise that time. That doesn't mean that I every single week make it, but it does mean that I start the week intending to make it. Hello and welcome to Run the Business, the podcast that explores the place where running and leadership come together. We'll find out how running can help us with leading, connecting with people and generally being better in business. We might even answer the question, do runners make better leaders? I'm Anthony Gay and today's guest is the Director of Journalism and Deputy CEO of BBC News and Current Affairs. He's head of BBC News Gathering, the world's largest broadcast news gathering operation with more than 60 international bureaus. He was previously at ITN for 26 years. He's covered the Balkans War, both Gulf Wars and the Beijing and London Olympics. He's worked in the US, Russia, Africa and was European correspondent for three years and political news editor for two Relevant to this conversation, though, he's also a runner. Jonathan Munro, welcome to Run the Business. Thanks very much, Ant. It's great to be here. Jonathan, how are you today? I'm good. I'm, I'm, uh, I haven't been running for a couple of days, so I'm itching to get out there, but I'm fine. Thank you. Great. And I'll address the elephant in the room straight away. It makes me a little nervous to be the one asking the questions to such a senior and experienced journalist as you are. Do you have any advice for me at the beginning of this conversation? <laughs> Um, I, I always think uh, simple advice is the best. Lots of open questions that can take the conversation anywhere uh, you want to go. But I'm looking forward to it. Brilliant. Well, let's let's do that then. And let's start with just setting the context. Whereabouts are you in the world? So I'm at home this morning. I'm in Northamptonshire. I'm very lucky to live in uh, a part of the world that's pretty and uh, lots of good running routes around here. And I've lived here for about... Uh, 23 or 24 years so I've, I've run every back street and lane in this area in uh, several pairs of rather dusty old trainers and tell us as well a little bit about what you do at the BBC because it, it it sounds you know that intro and I don't think it underplays it you have a big role at the BBC yes uh, so the the formal job title is director of journalism at the BBC so in that role I oversee the journalistic activities of of news and current affairs and some of that is stuff that most of your listeners will recognise as BBC News. It, it does what it says on the tin. It, it, it's a BBC News programme, BBC News website or whatever. Uh, but there's a lot of work as well in current affairs and investigative reporting on programmes like Panorama or File on 4 or Radio 4, that sort of thing. Quite a lot of that derives now in podcasts, um, newscasts, Ukrainecasts, those sorts of uh, products. And with that goes the responsibility of... A huge number of people. We've got a, a lot of staff at uh, home and abroad, and we're a very big organisation with quite a high profile about which people have got their views. And, uh, and you know, we're publicly funded, so people are entitled to their views, uh, absolutely entitled to their views. And that can be both a good thing and sometimes quite a frustrating thing when we're being knocked around a bit um, for people's gain uh, when they're making an argument, they choose to make it about the BBC. But it all goes with the sort of um, rough and tumble of, of of a job in in the biggest news organisation of the world, and and uh, every day is different, which is a, a nice thing to be able to say about anyone's job. In an attempt to find some common ground, I noticed you're also a Yorkshireman. Uh, so can, I am, as I am as well. So can you tell me a little bit about sort of growing up in Yorkshire, and if there was any running in that part of your life, and and sort of moving on to when did running become a thing for you? 
Yeah, it, it wasn't when I was a kid, actually. Uh, I grew up in Yorkshire, uh, grew up in what were in those days the sort of coal fields of South Yorkshire. Uh, they're not coal fields anymore. And I wasn't really uh, into sport in a particularly big way at school. I, I think I had a very happy and, and good childhood and, and a very happy time at, at, at school. But the one thing that I think school didn't bring out of me was um, a love of of running and, and sports that I could do. I was never very good at coordinating my body with a ball or a racket or a net. Or, and I was never very interested in rugby or f- or football or tennis. I couldn't really get the ball over the net very well. I used to swim quite a lot. We we had, luckily, we had a, a swimming pool that the school had use of. So I, I did that quite a bit. And I suppose that was a clue to more sort of solitary sport, which came into my life a, a bit later, and not really until my mid-30s. And I, I do regret not finding it earlier. I remember one day at school, um, I didn't really enjoy PE, but one day we did a cross-country run, and I really enjoyed it. And I, I can't explain why I didn't think to myself at the time, oh, I should do a bit more of this, because I actually had a bit of fun there in a way that I don't do when I'm going to play rugby. But I didn't. I, I can't explain why. But I didn't really discover it until much later. And when you did discover it, where was that and, and how, how did it come about? Well, there's a direct connection to work. And, and I guess that's really the, the connections are really the theme of this conversation. But it's a sad connection and, and one that makes me emotional even even now. Um, and it, it's 20 years ago, in fact, this mm. month, um, when the the world was watching um, the Gulf War, the second Gulf War. And I was at ITN at the time as head of news gathering, responsible for the deployments into um, Kuwait. And very sadly, very tragically, mm-hmm. one of our teams uh, in the desert came under fire from American Marines. And we lost a, a correspondent, a guy called Terry Lloyd, and two of his colleagues. And there was only one survivor. And it was a traumatic and incredibly difficult period. And through that period of managing the war and then going out to Kuwait to help manage the aftermath of that disaster, I just didn't eat, really. And um, I lost quite a lot of weight. And I had a bit of weight to lose. So when I got back and and went on a a sort of much-needed holiday after the, the trauma of covering that and the disaster of the loss... I thought, well, I, I don't want to put that weight back on again, but equally I don't want to sort of be on a constant, you know, diet. So I'd better do something about it. So we went to, we were on holiday in South Africa with some friends in Johannesburg who lived out there. And I, at the shopping mall on the first day of the holiday, I thought, you know what, I'll just buy myself some running shoes. I hadn't really come equipped to do anything. But I thought, if I just do a quick run every day, I'll just see what happens. I bought completely the wrong shoes. They were actually tennis shoes. I had no idea what I was buying, but um, they came from a sports shop. They they kind of therefore sort of did the job. And um, I ran and I found it incredibly difficult. It was like I could go a mile and I felt totally and absolutely exhausted. But what I hadn't realised, because I knew nothing about running, was that Johannesburg is very high in terms of its altitude. So I was running with, you know, very thin oxygen. So I brought those same tennis shoes back home, back to sea level, and I put them on. I thought, well, I'll give it a go at home. And I could run for ages because I was like I was like drinking in this really thick oxygen. And down the road from us, there's a reservoir with a 
a towpath around it, a, a um, causeway around it, which is seven miles. And I thought, well, I'll never be able to run this, having only run a mile in Johannesburg. And I got round first time. And I thought, OK, I've discovered something which uh, I can do. I enjoy it. And you know what? I'm I'm not going to be Sebastian Coe anytime soon, but I, c- I can do a respectable run. And that was great. And at what point did you start to sort of feel the, the benefits of of running? Uh, and, and, you know, you, you talked about the experience that you went through and, and wanting to sort of get out and, 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 and run. There's There are huge mental mental health benefits from running out there and and at what point did you start to appreciate that yeah massive mental health benefits i think um i think in those very first few months this so this is back in 2003 um my focus was getting around that reservoir and then going a bit further and going a bit further it was it was sort of task focused really it was when i relaxed into it um probably later that year the year after that i began to find myself as i was running around the reservoir or going further afield beginning to think about things in my life, usually work life, you know. Um, although I had young kids at the time, so that was also, to be honest, it was quite nice to have a bit of time um, uh, out and for myself and began to realise, OK, I've just solved that problem by thinking that through on this run or um, I've just realised how I should address this particular thorny issue at work next week. And then you build that sort of into your um, processes for coping with a busy job it, it was a you know I was still at ITM then it was a big job it was wasn't as big as the job I'm in now but it was a big job and I found that enormously um, helpful and I never really stopped running after that I, I just kept on going and the following year I did my first London marathon um, and that became a, a task thing but then when you, when you you know you you're in mile 15 or something feeling extremely tired and you begin to think about other things to take your mind off things and that that can get you into really interesting times in your brain where you're solving a problem or you know um thinking through a dilemma or whatever and you you feel a bit better for having done that can you remember any specific problems or or challenges that you were you know you work through that you know even today you look back and go i remember when i was you know i solved that or did that or thought about that Oh yeah, lots. Uh, I mean, over the years, we've we've, for example, done lots of restructuring and you know taken lots of money out and, and made some really difficult decisions at the BBC about um, savings programs and that sort of thing. And as a senior leader, you know your job is to be the communicator of all that as well as the one of the decision makers. And that's you know that's a pretty tough thing. Can be a tough thing. Um, and there've been lots of times when I've just refined my language or my words or my approach or my attitude to a meeting or a consultation while I've been pounding the streets and you'd never get all those things right and people will always think you know uh, the handling of things isn't isn't perfect but it just gives you a chance to try to think things through in a way that you know is your own time because a key thing about my running is I never take my phone with me um, because my phone goes off all the time for work and it's the one time in my week when I know I'm not going to get interrupted by a call a text a whatsapp or anything it's I leave my phone at home and that gives you the time to think things through and to change your mind about things that happens a lot you know you start the run thinking I'll tell you what I'll I'll attack this in in a certain way and by the time you've finished you thought no that's not going to work um I'll I'll do it a different way and I think everybody needs that space and time, and for me, it's definitely when I'm out um, when I'm out running. 
Were you running when you were traveling, you know, when you were covering events around the world and you, you were a correspondent or was that a different part of your, your life? Uh, it was a different part of my life because by the time the, the Gulf War happened, I was in management CITN. So I travel for different reasons now. But one of the um, one of the beauties of being a runner, I think, is that even if I'm going hand luggage only, I can either wear or take my running shoes with me pretty much everywhere. And you just need those, a pair of shorts and a vest, and you've got everything you need. So you don't, you know, friends I go travelling with sometimes, they're, they're trying to book a tennis court or find a golf course or find someone to play some sport with or other. You don't need any of that, do you? You just need... Um, your running basic running kit, a reasonable idea of a route which you could just pick, bring up on a Google map, um, and that can be twenty minutes or an hour or two hours or longer. Um, and most you know most decent hotels have a reasonable gym, so I do quite a lot of treadmill stuff. So I, I always travel with my uh, with my running kit. I think it's really important. You know, when you look back on on your running and think about how you've developed as a leader. Can you see the benefits that, that running has, has brought to your style and, and who you are as a leader? Yeah, I think I can. Whether, whether they're evident to anyone else, of course, probably, probably not. But I think part of it is keeping things in perspective, you know, and, and life can teach you all kinds of lessons about that, can't it? I remember on my first marathon, I was, um, I, in, in the interest of full disclosure, I'm never going to win the London Marathon, you know, I'm a, I'm a sort of around <laughs> about a four hour marathoner, that, that sort of. Uh, distance at a yeah. time. I've done 10 Londons and I've done um, half of them, exactly half of them under four hours and exactly half of them just over four hours. I remember on the first one, I was aiming for four hours. I think lots of people do that in their first marathon. They try, in my view, it's a mistake, actually. I think the first marathon is all about getting round, but I didn't know that at the time. So I was, I was trying to get, and I was there in four hours, two minutes. So it's sort of really frustrating, but then again, a, a, a real reason for going again but I remember, I, those of you on the London Marathon will know that you, at the very end, you, you go down Birdcage Walk and then you turn right past what's known as the Wedding Cake, which is the memorial to Victoria, or just outside Buckingham Palace. And then you turn up towards yeah. the finish line and you can see the finish line just in front of you. And as I turned that last corner, uh, thinking I'm not going to get four hours, it was already 3.58 or 3.59 even by then. And I was feeling pretty down about it. And then I had to laugh because I was overtaken by a, a man dressed as a pepperami. And, uh, you know, he, he was, he's in this massive hot thing, you know, and he's run 26.2 miles. And he's looking, I can't see his face because he's covered in you know, artificial sausage meat. Um, but you just have to laugh at that point and think, you know what, all human life is here and people are doing amazing things and um, they're doing them better than me or worse than me or faster than me or slower than me. It doesn't matter. They're all doing it in their own way. And I think there's something in broader life about that. Most people I come across are very well intentioned. We may not agree about the way something should be done or even what should we do, but I, I don't question my colleagues' intentions ever, really, because I think people are in organisations like the BBC for good reasons and their intentions are very very um honorable and uh there's something about the marathon runner in that everybody's trying to do the same thing they're all trying to get to the same destination they may have completely different methods of doing it they may go fast they may go slow they may have some weird techniques and they may be dressed as a pepper army but they're all trying to achieve the same thing and i do see parallels with that 
You mentioned that shared energy, that camaraderie when a, a group of people come together for a mass participation event like running. And, and I know you'll appreciate this. It, it's an amazing feeling when you get that sense of togetherness. Do you do you see parallels in, in you know, in your in your work and in leadership and, and kind of how you bring teams together in, in that same way? Yes, I think so. I wonder whether those parallels are even stronger if you're into team sports, which, as I said earlier, I'm not really. Because um, there is something slightly lonely about you know, There's a book, isn't there, called The Loneliness of a Long-Distance Runner. Um, so I, I think there's a resilience yeah. point about that, which does stand you in very good stead. And I love company. It's not. I didn't get into running because I'm a solitary type of person. I, I The opposite. I, I love... Um, going to the pub with friends or meeting up with loads of family or, you know, um, spending time with folks that I'm, I'm fond of, whether they're, they're, they're family or, or, uh, or not. And, and so it, it's not a loneliness that I take into broader life. But I think your, your point about um, the lessons you learn in one walk of life being applicable to another absolutely applies. I think um, one of them is, is, is patience you know I'm not a sprinter I'm a distance runner and um, I think you learn therefore that you just got you know there's a grind about that and there are tough times when you've got to grit your teeth and get through the wall the barrier whatever you know whatever phrase you use and I also think there's there's something in the lesson that you know you didn't win a medal for doing everything without any help or assistance so if you need an energy gel take it and the same is true in work. You know, if, if someone's offering to help you do something, accept that graciously. And I think that does help you get to the finish line in, in both senses of that word. You mentioned uh, a moment ago about having uh, with the people that you work with, you, you never question their, their intention and, and um, you know, always see the good in people. Are, are you an optimist when it comes to uh, life? And do you always look at try and look at things positively? I try. Whether I always succeed or not, I, I don't know. <laughs> it's a good thing, I think, to, to, to try to be optimistic, uh, although not, not unreasonably so. But I think you can also, as a runner, you can start off thinking, oh, the weather's really terrible today for a run. Uh, it's really too hot. Mm. Or it's absolutely brutally cold and very strong wind or whatever it might be. And actually, I, th- I think starting off feeling that you're determined to get through it is probably a better phrase than optimism necessarily for that. Um, but that helps. I think optimism could also lead you to some degree of disappointment when you're running. I remember one year that my family always go to the same point at the marathon uh, to watch and cheer. And it's at about 23 miles. Um, and... I've always found them and I've always, always thought it's a really uplifting thing as you're coming into that last really tough three miles. And then one year, my wife couldn't make it. She'd been there every single year, but she couldn't make it because my son was playing a football tournament and needed to be driven to, I can't remember where, but somewhere. And so my brother came Mm -hmm. down and that was great. And he brought my daughter down, but he had this idea that he would get a better view and it would be better for me if he was on the other side of the road. <laughs> well, as anyone who's run the London Marathon knows, that's just not a good plan because if you're looking to the right and the people you're looking yeah. for on the left, you're never going to hear them. And and um, I remember running past there and that's a, that was a massively deflationary feeling <laughs> because I'd built up optimism about that point when I would see uh, the family and I really expected him to be there. And that was uh, that was a very tough three miles that last three miles and we laughed and joked about it afterwards um but it comes back to what i was saying before people act with good intent and his intent was absolutely 
perfect. It was to, he thought he was doing the right thing. Um, and that's that's always worth bearing in mind, I think, when optimism turns to be, turns out to be a little bit um, uh, ill-founded, which can happen from time to time. Switching to to your your work, are there any highlights in all those events that I mentioned in the intro? All those things that you covered, things that you you're proud to have been there at a particular moment. And I did want to mention, as a sports fan, was the Olympics quite special as well? Uh, yeah, I've done, I've done two Olympics in a kind of hands-on way. Uh, I went to Beijing um, in 2008 and did uh, I sort of ran the operation there for ITN. And the reason that was so such a big story is because obviously we knew by then that the UK would have the Olympics uh, four years later. So it's a massive story and I absolutely loved it. And I think all of that stuff is so inspiring. And what's great about the Olympics, I mean, I love the the athletic side of things, but you'd expect me to say that as a runner. But what is so great is is just going to see sports that you, you don't know anything about. So I, a friend and I managed to get tickets to the rowing in Beijing one afternoon and I'd never been to a rowing event before and I haven't been to one since but it was it was one where Britain won a gold it was absolutely brilliant the velodrome I don't know my my brother's a mad cyclist but I, but he's a road cyclist and I've not really ever done velodromes before but um that was really interesting and then in London in 2012 in some ways actually professionally speaking it was a slightly frustrating experience because when you're covering sport for television you are really restricted by the contractual rights you have to the pictures and the presence in the arenas and so on. And the BBC owns the rights to the Olympics. So working at ITN at the time, we were outsiders on a a temporary newsroom built in a porter cabin on the roof of a John Lewis car park. (laughs) So uh, it wasn't particularly glamorous. But I loved the Olympics being in London. I thought it was such an upbeat and positive thing uh, it was inspiring. We got some tickets to go and see the gymnastics. Again, I'd never really been to a gymnastics thing before. And I guess that's a bit like running, isn't it? You're, you're, you're competing for your, yourself. You're competing against yourself. I always think that one of the tricks about solo sports is you're competing against yourself. You're competing against the the, the mind games or the physical exhaustion or the target that you set yourself. And um, you're doing it in a hopefully in a way that's rewarding and brings you satisfaction and that's not necessarily winning anything but if you be if you're winning against yourself that's uh that's a real trick i think you mentioned the london marathon and some of the marathons you've done are there any runs whether it maybe it is a london marathon but are there any other l- runs that stick out in your mind as special moments in time stuff that that you remember and you will just carry forward to the end of your days yeah, I mean, most of my memories are around the London Marathon because I've done 10 of those, but I've, I haven't done any other marathon. Every every one I've done has always been London. Um, and I've I've had friends who've said, oh, you should go to New York. And, and I, maybe I should, but I, I always think if I go to New York, I've got loads of things to do there. And I don't particularly want to spend the time having a sort of jet-lagged, alcohol-free few days preparing for a gruelling run. Yeah. I'd, rather, I'd rather do that at home, to be honest. There, there are lots of... Of memories, uh, uh, and um, most of them are lovely moments in London where you are running with alongside some people who are doing some amazing things. That the, the the wheelchair athletes are always incredibly inspiring. And again, for those who've done the course, you you turn right off Tower Bridge along Broadway, and on the other side of the same road on the dual carriageway, when I'm going outbound, the wheelchair elites are coming in. And that's unbelievably inspiring, I think. It really is. 
And then you do the great loop around Isle of Dogs, which is not the nicest bit of the race, to be honest. And when I come back in, the people going outbound then are the fun runners. And they're the people who are, they're probably doing their first marathon. They're running for a really good cause. They very often are wearing a shirt that says, you know, they're running for their partner or their mum or dad or even one of their kids who's, you know, died very sadly and they're raising money. That's incredibly inspiring stuff. I think that's a really powerful thing about the marathon because it's where a sporting event, an elite sporting event, one of the great sporting events in the world, meets the real lives of literally tens of thousands of people doing it for a whole host of reasons. That's an incredibly um, moving experience, I think. And I certainly found the first couple of um, marathons really quite emotional from that point of view. And even now, uh, um, I find that quite a big thing, actually, in in the motivation for getting round. There's something, isn't there, about the, the, towards the end of those longer distances where the emotions just come, you know, can come flooding forward, and and you find places in your in your mind, in your life that that maybe you didn't you didn't realise were there. It does open you up to thinking in certain ways, doesn't it? Oh, definitely. Because <laughs> by the time, to be honest, by the time you get round, um, you, you're in the last five or six miles. You haven't got anything else to go on. You, you know, you've run out of energy. Yeah. You've had too many gels and uh, your, your teeth feel like they're, they're rotting to the core because you've consumed so much sugar. Yeah. I always think one of the great tips I picked up actually for the marathon was um, in your hand luggage that you pile on the uh, lorries, always take a toothbrush and a toothpaste to scrub away the gels because it's such a horrible feeling. Uh, but yeah, of course, it's the the emotion. Sometimes you can be motivated by, um, uh, you know, just a determination to overcome the odds. So I remember one year I, I had a an IT band that was pretty sore and um, I was desperate to get one of those good aggressive rubs from a, one of those wonderful St. John's people who uh, sit on the side of the course and yeah. I came across one of those, those St. John's flag I thought oh thank goodness for that I'm going to get a bit of relief on this I was in just coming off the back of Canary Wharf and um, some poor bloke in front of me more or less collapsed and I thought well I can't possibly distract the St. John's <laughs> so I ran on a bit further and I just kept running and got through and the the, the Second or third year, I think. I, I'd never really suffered from... Are we allowed to talk about joggers' nipple? I think we are, aren't we, on a runner's we, podcast? We can, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and um, I was inevitably wearing a white shirt, and I had these red streaks coming down both sides of my chest, and God, they were sore. But actually, the motivation of finishing the run, because there was no other way of getting the shirt off, <laughs> proved to be qu- quite powerful. You've talked about how inspiring that London Marathon experience can be and, and how, you know, the different inspirations you can see there. In terms of leadership, who who inspires you in leadership? Where do you get your energy from in that space? Oh, that's a great question. And, and probably in truth, not in the running world. Um, you know, I, I've been lucky enough to work for some fantastic uh, editors and, and journalists over the years and some who've really inspired me and whose lessons I've taken into my career and I'm in touch with many of them and it's uh, it's great many of them have retired now and I walk in in their shadow in many ways and none of them really have been have come to me through running they've come to me through um, work experience they've many of them have been extremely generous by the way whenever I've done the marathon I always try and turn it to a good cause so I tend to raise money for the Red Cross and there's a real camaraderie and uh, support for that, and very often from people who've been great leaders for me. And one reason for that is that there's a thing we call the journalist paradox. And the journalist paradox is that when most people are trying to leave 
somewhere in the world we're trying to go there you know it might be a war zone or an earthquake zone or something you know, there's been a revolution somewhere or whatever and we're flo- we're swimming against the tide and we're going mm. into places that other people are trying to quit and people at like the red cross are usually there too and so with journalists i often say to them you know i, I do the red cross because they they have their own version of the journalist paradox and that's been uh, quite motivating for me and also spurred a lot of leaders that I've uh, been lucky enough to work with to be extremely generous, um, both to me personally, but also financially to to that charity. And, and, and I think using the opportunity to do something good in life, like raising a few thousand pounds for some good causes, is just an added value to, to doing events like London. I'd, al- I'd always urge people to do that. You can of course, you can go in the ballot and, and get a place uh, if you are lucky. Lot odds are quite slim, but you know it's not impossible. But why wouldn't you just try to do something good out of it and improve someone's life somewhere? Uh, that's that's a really, you know, from my view, point of view at least, a really positive uh, way of converting your energy and your time into something great for someone else. Here, here, absolutely. Uh, we we talked about the mental health benefits of running and, and the energy that you get when, when the extra energy that you get when you go out running. I mean, in, in the space that you work in, the people that you work with, it must be pretty tough uh, and to be having to be exposed to all those things that are going on in the world and, and, and report on those and deal with those. Is running ever something that you'd suggest, recommend to colleagues as, as, a, as a mechanism for, for coping or as an outlet for, for some of the stuff that they, they might be dealing with at work? I'd always recommend to colleagues they have something. I don't think it has to be running, although, of course, I personally find running is the right thing for me. But, you know, I've got colleagues who are in a choir or play football or whatever. I, I, I don't think it actually much matters what it is. Mm. It slightly depends on your personality and what you're good at. There's no point pursuing something you're hopeless at. It's just frustrating, yeah. right? So I think the, I think the, the key to it, to be honest, is, is twofold. There are two keys to it. The first is to have something that you really want to do in your spare time. Because if it's a drag, frankly, you're going to find excuses not to. So you've got to find something that you uh, you want to do. And with running, that that isn't necessarily obvious on day one. You might need to give it a, give it a while. The second is that even in a busy and dynamic walk of life like journalism because and I use the word dynamic because you know right now sitting here talking to you there is no major breaking story happening but in 10 minutes time that might be different so your life is is not um, entirely controllable but you have to have some grip on your priorities and so I for example I run in a an athletics club every Tuesday evening with a group of people who've become friends and and uh, comrades on 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 the streets and I, I really prioritise that time. That doesn't mean that I every single week make it. Um, but it does mean that I start the week intending to make it. And nine times out of ten I do. And that's been quite a release. And actually started during lockdown because um, I was working from home a lot more. And it was a lot easier to organise. And I've, th- I've sort of taken that back into an office world, which is most of my time now is back in the office. Mm-hmm. And I found that discipline of, I've got to leave at this time on a Tuesday because actually this is really important to me. So the bar for disrupting that is high. That doesn't mean to say that if there's some really, really big issue came up, I wouldn't have to prioritise that. But it's really important to me to get out to do the running club. 
So the bar's got to be really high to disrupt it. Mm. That idea of, of prioritising time and having the intention is, is so important, isn't it, in life, to protect the things that's important to you? It is. And you build up that resilience as well. And you, build, you build up techniques for saying to people, Look, I know you want to see me, but I just can't see you then. And the reason isn't because I've got a more important work commitment. It's because I've got something I do outside work, which helps me and which I enjoy. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's, it's obviously... There's a balance here. You, you know, mine is just once a week. Uh, I think that's a reasonable uh, trade-off. And the rest of the time, I'm I'm pretty available. But as I as I mentioned, I don't I don't take my phone even when I'm running. So I'm just not available. And the the thing about uh, this, I'm sure this applies in most walks of life. It certainly applies in my walk of life. No one is indispensable. If 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 colleagues can't reach you to make a decision that they think you should make, someone else will make it. And it's just like when you're on an aeroplane. So I, I dread the days when um, I get onto a plane and someone says, Wi-Fi is available. I don't want Wi-Fi. I want to sit on a plane yeah. and have a few hours off, thanks. And and that's the same with going for a run. I, I, I want to be uncontactable. And that's not because I'm an isolationist. It's because it's a, a mental thing about having some time to focus on something else. And does that mean music uh, podcasts aren't part of your running experience as well? You know, they're not. They, they they were when I first started. First two or three years, I, I had a little iPod, which were then very fashionable. And I loaded on 200 songs or something that were a combination of things I liked or things with a, a rhythm that I could run to. And there's, there's still things that I like. But on the, on the, I think it might have been the second or third marathon, I hit a bit of a wall. I thought, I'll put my headphones in. It was such a mistake. Um because even just putting my headphones in disrupted my rhythm. And then it's so noisy on the streets that I could hardly hear the music anyway. And then I got frustrated about that because actually I thought if I could just hear, I can't remember what music it was now, but if I could just hear that, it would help me through the next mile. In the end, I just took the headphones out and I've never used them again, even for training runs. I I just go and I, I live in um, a lovely part of the countryside. I'm very, very lucky. Got nice... Um, country lanes around us and so we've got the sounds of nature and fresh air and I, I never ever take music and I haven't done for seven or eight years at least. There's something so powerful about running in nature as well I mean we've talked about it on previous podcasts where just being out there in the green and the blue is it, it can it can be so energizing can't it? You know it's it's like you know we're talking in in March and the daffodils are out and I always think one of the nice things about London um, being timed for April is that you do your really long runs about this time of year. I'm, I'm not doing it this year, so I'm not involved in that. But each week you see a bit more of life coming back into nature. You see a few more flowers out or a bit more greenery on the bushes. Um can be quite cold and brutal, of course, this time of year. But um, just monitoring that as you go through. And I, I've got a regular route that I do pretty often, which is about an eight miler. Um, uh, from home just a, a quick circuit that I do uh, most weeks and every week something's changed and that's just a, a really lovely way of marking time in a, in a in a good way. Have you seen your goals change over the years both, both from a, a work perspective and, and in running? Uh, yeah I think from a running perspective um, first of all um, the goals about, about the marathon were very largely in the first few years about time 
Um, can I get around in four? Can I get around in 350? Uh, whatever. Um, I don't really hold that particularly close anymore because I, I feel I've got, I'm never going to, I'm not going to go any faster now. You know, you, you just inevitably get a bit slower as you get older, not radically so, but a bit. And um, so, you know, if I do go around again and I haven't decided whether to or not, um, it would be much more about enjoying it, making the most of the experience, soaking it all in, getting around in one piece, uh, that sort of thing. It's slightly less ambitious in some ways, but maybe a little bit more enjoyable. Um, and in work, um, certainly not less ambitious. I, you know, the, the job requires ambition to deliver. So I wouldn't say that's changed. But what constitutes success changes over the years because you become more rounded in your judgments about things hopefully and uh, whether you succeed in that or not as you know other people can judge but um, you become uh, perhaps less fixated on an individual task and more on the overall outcome that you're trying to achieve and I spend a lot of time saying to colleagues look this isn't about achieving a certain task it's about the outcome at the end of the day and that's a bit like running you know the task might be to get in four hours but the outcome is to finish the race so Outcome is more important than task, as, I, as certainly for me, as I've got older and more experienced. I've got to ask, does anything surprise you anymore? Because it feels like the world that we're in at the moment and things, events that have happened over the years, st- you could not make some of the stuff up. Does, as a journalist, as, as, a, as an observer of world events, do you still get surprised when things, when things take a twist and go in a different direction? Uh, yes, and I think when you stop being surprised, it's probably the time to stop being a journalist because the, the, there's there's never been a perfect definition of news. But one one attempt at a definition that I like is that news is the unexpected. And I, if you think about that, that's that doesn't mean to say that you can't make a news story out of something you're expecting to happen. But it's always going to be a better story if something unexpected happens along the way. And so you should always be surprised about things, uh, surprised as opposed to shocked. I think if you look back at what we've been dealing with, um, particularly around uh, the pandemic, the individual incremental move of, you know, a Tuesday had a different storyline from a Monday, which was different from the Sunday. They weren't in themselves surprises because it moved at times anyway, over a two and a half year period, it it moved quite slowly. But the surprise looking back at it is is immense. You know, what we went through as a as a population um, what what did and didn't work, the deaths of so many. These are all things that you should be surprised about and most importantly, curious about as a journalist. And I think if you if you get out of bed in the morning and you don't have a, a mission to um, explain the surprises and to, you know, to rationalise them and just sometimes to be just a bit gobsmacked, then, you, you know, you've probably lost the burning candle in your career at that stage and maybe that'll happen uh, it hasn't happened yet touch wood um so uh you know watch the space at the moment is it tough to do what you do uh, you know when you look back at people that have been in your role over the years do you think that this is a hard time to be doing this job uh i suspect there's never really been an easy time to do this job and that's not a complaint by the way i think uh the jobs that we do are challenging that's the way it should be um, we're paid public money to do difficult things, and that's fine. I think this particular era, the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, cost of living crisis, etc., is tricky. There are lots of challenges, and being 
in the BBC is challenging because the way we approach some of those stories becomes quite controversial and quite time consuming to deal with. And you can be in a bit of a no win thing. Um, and that's when rationalizing things over a you know an eight mile run is is very helpful. But I imagine if whoever was sitting in my seat during, I don't know, the Falklands War or the 1970s industrial crises or disasters we've known and loved. You know, I remember um, when I was at ITN, uh, there was a series of disasters of one sort or another around the Herald of Free Enterprise sank just before I joined ITN, actually. But then there was the King's Cross fire, the Enniskillen bomb, the Kegworth air crash, Lockerbie. They all happened within a fairly short period of time. And you talked about surprise earlier. And, you know, if you've got to have an element of inhumanity if you're not surprised by those sorts of stories. And they're immensely challenging things. It's equally, but in a different way, immensely challenging to cover or be involved in the management of coverage of a war in Europe that's gone on for more than a year. Or a really controversial issue like Brexit, where your audience take very polarising views and some portions of those audience choose to make that a dispute between themselves and the BBC because they don't recognise their views being portrayed in a way that they think is fair. And everyone's entitled to their view. They all pay for us. But that's, you know, that is a stressful and difficult combination of things. But my predecessors will have had equivalent stresses and strains, and um, that's the nature of the beast. And frankly, uh, we wouldn't really have it any other way because it's what makes it's the, it's the intersection between what we do and the audience who consume it. And um, if you don't have that, then you're 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 broadcasting into a vacuum, which is a, a totally pointless exercise. So um, all of that is said in the spirit of yeah, it can be tough, and you have to have coping mechanisms. And we've talked about how running is part of that. But none of that is a complaint at all. Jonathan, a couple of questions to finish. Uh, Running aside, can you name a a business tool, an app, a person, something that you couldn't do without in your your work world? Oh, I think that you you mentioned a person. I'm not going to say it's an individual, uh, although I've got a couple of close colleagues in mind who are sounding boards and um, confidants about loads of stuff. And I think that comes down to an absolute uh, relationship of trust uh, that you can share something, even kind of outlandish thoughts, you know, what if we scrapped this, reinvented that, you know, whatever. Just having someone to think aloud to who you know is going to trust the confidence of that intimacy has always been crucial for me. And there have been many people like that over the years and none of them have let me down. And I, I think, having trust in your colleagues is really important and some you will decide you know are not the right partner for you in that kind of relationship but if you can find one or two people in your working life you might not agree with them about everything you might strongly disagree with them about some things that's probably quite healthy but you can share stuff with them and you really respect what they think about your your perceptions that's that's that you can't put a price on that. It's great advice. Business aside, what, what's your favourite bit of running kit or a running accessory you can't do without? <laughs> I'm a fairly simple runner, really. Because I, I, as I said earlier, I don't, I don't run with music. Um, I've got drawfuls of, uh, of kit acquired from every marathon and qualifying race. And I've got sweatshirts and goodness knows what else. 
I think the thing that, uh, apart from having very good running shoes, I, I, uh, that's a very important point. I, I, you'll have discussed this, I'm sure, on many podcasts, but I saw a post, Facebook post from um, someone I know the other day who's doing their first London Marathon, and they're in their, the, the tough stage of 18-mile training runs, and their knees are hurting badly, and mm. they're going to change their trainers. And I'm thinking, blimey, that is really late in the day. But they never got, they never got themselves properly... Uh, gate assessed and yeah. I went to you know I think this will be a common thing for lots of your audience go and get yourself assessed by professionals who can give you the best running shoes for your gait it's so important and changing them a few weeks before the marathon when you're about to do your last long run that's not a great place to be right so get the right shoes is an obvious point I use um, a brand called Brooks Adrenaline which worked for me really well mm-hmm. other brands are available but getting that advice from people who look at this guy said to me, I'm going to film your kneecaps and I want your kneecaps to be going straight forward like the headlights on your car. And if they're not, I'm going to give you the trainers to adjust them. And he was the best advisor I've ever had. He was brilliant. And the final thing was, is um, I've, I've never run with a sort of massive sort of bag of kit, but get some shorts that have got plenty of little zip up pockets for your keys, your gels your nipple plasters if you're um, a guy because uh, you need them indeed uh, and um, you sometimes look at shorts and think oh they look they're a really nice color or they're gonna they're gonna go with that shirt really well and you, you get them off the shelf and they've got no pockets or they've got a tiny thing you can't even get a car key into or whatever get some with zip up pockets <laughs> really simple stuff great advice I stopped trying to coordinate running gear many years ago. It's it's uh, it, it, it's it's got to be the right stuff, hasn't it? Definitely. And the final question: What advice would you give to anybody listening to this who's in a business role, a leadership role, and they're considering getting more active, specifically taking up running? What would your advice be? Well, first of all, do it. Uh, secondly, uh, don't expect to run a marathon on week one. Uh, build up slowly. You've got to work out yourself whether you're a sprinter or a middle distance person or a long distance person you're not going to know that until you give it a, a go uh, you know i've said in in this conversation personally i don't use music that doesn't mean to say you shouldn't personally i don't you know i don't have loads of kit with me that doesn't mean to say you shouldn't do what's right um for you but most of all i think and it's give yourself a bit of time don't decide after run one or run two this isn't going to work for you give yourself six months if you're going to give yourself six months, go and buy some decent running shoes. Don't do what I did and buy some tennis shoes that you thought were for running and weren't. Just make it, if it's six months of your life and you're going to work out at the end of it whether it's going to be part of your life or not, you're going to spend quite a few hours in those running shoes. Just invest a little bit in giving yourself the best chance of making it work for you. And then at least if it doesn't, you can say to yourself, I gave it a really good go. It's not for me. I'll go back to the chessboard or the choir or whatever. You've, you've tried. There's nothing wrong with that. Jonathan Munro, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for being so open and honest. Uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, yeah, uh, and enjoy your next run. Thank you. Thank you very much, Anne. Thank you. Thanks again to Jonathan Munro for his time on Run the Business this week. Another fascinating conversation about running and leadership. And thanks to Jonathan for being so so open and thoughtful about his role and responsibilities he has at the BBC as well. 
so much of what he was saying made me think about the mental health benefits of exercise and specifically running and, and how valuable they can be, especially if you're in a senior role or a leadership position where running becomes your space. I know we've talked about this before on the podcast, but as a journalist who is, I guess, always switched on, all, always has stuff going on, to have something like running with no phone, no music, as an outlet must be quite powerful to have that space you can go to. And I know that transfers to many other walks of life as well. I know one of the many benefits I get from running is my own space and time to ponder and contemplate life. But that dynamic new space that Jonathan talks about must be quite overpowering if you don't have something in your life to give you that counterbalance to it. It was interesting to hear him talk about the journalist paradox as well and also how running uh, running can be used to do something good in life, to raise some money for a good cause. Another huge benefit of mass participation running events. Having people around you that you trust was something else I took from that conversation. People that might disagree with you some of the time, maybe a lot of the time, but people that you can bounce ideas off, debate with, test things out with in a safe and confidential space. Long-term successful leadership can't be a solo event. I hear that so many times. And some great practical advice there as well if, if you're running, especially towards the end. Um, if you're a new runner, yep, you can run in any trainers if you're starting out. But if you're serious and the longer your distance, the more important it is to get a pair of running shoes that fit and the gait is right for you. Take that away from this conversation if you take nothing else. Run the Business is a Real 2 Media production. If you're not already doing so, please follow the podcast, download, comment, share. I would be super grateful if you could do that right now before you go off and do something else. And maybe you're off running. Enjoy that run if you're going out now or maybe you are out there already. I'm Anthony Gay. And until next time, happy running and keep chasing your goals. Goals.